Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and welcome to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. On this week's episode, a conversation with the multi-talented Kirsch Gare on his career, Van Halen and his American music influences, and the power of savoring a moment. Stay tuned. So in this very strange landscape of 2020, I've actually found a lot of comfort in revisiting the foundational links between music and friendship. And that's exactly what happened when I reconnected with my friend Kirsch Gare. Kirsch and I shared some time together in New York City when we were both students, and he was at the beginning of a blossoming music career. Kirsch is a true musical pioneer, framing the Asian underground music scene in the 90s, to now a storied career as a producer, songwriter, composer, and DJ. While his musical talents are as diverse and eclectic as his audiences, a love of drums and tabla are at the core, offering the music world the true innovation of the electric tabla. His collaborations have included work with Ustad Zakir Hussain, Anushka Shankar, Nora Jones, Sting, Herbie Hancock, Amel LaRue, and Bill Laswell, among many, many others. His scoring of the music for the 2019 film Gully Boy was recognized last month at the Asian Film Awards for Best Original Music. He's also the subject of the documentary Rock Disco Tabla, which chronicles his terrific journey throughout the years. We had a great chance to catch up recently and reflect a bit on the magnitude and the breadth of his career. Welcome everybody to this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm absolutely thrilled to reconnect with my friend uh, Kirsch Gaye. I'm very happy to be here and so nice to see you again after many, many years. You, you know, um, I was thinking about uh, an instance that happened to my wife and I. We were at, this was in the early 2000s, we were actually on a flight and I don't remember where we were flying to, but I actually remember actually listening to the in-flight entertainment and um, hearing one of your songs. And at that time for me, it was probably the first aha moment of the scale of your work. And I was thinking, you know, for you, when you sort of reflect back on some of those early days, were there any of those kinds of aha moments where you realized sort of like the scale and, and maybe the magnitude of, of how your music and what the reach was? Um, yeah, I mean, things like that, definitely, um, you, know, infl- you know, finding out that I was on the in-flight radio and, you know, I, I think more than anything, just like, you know, the, right away, once my first album had come out, it was out in 57 different countries around the world. And you start to, you know, back then there was no social media. Right. So, so even getting a letter or getting a message or getting, you know, any kind of information from that, like, you know, people in Mexico and people in Brazil are listening to your music and people in, you know, 
different parts of the people in Italy and Poland are, are listening to your music. It was that that was huge. That was not even in the scope of what I was trying to do at that time. I think when when we were living in New York at the same time, I was dreaming all of this kind of I was dreaming it all up. But yeah. what I was trying to accomplish was just to be able to say something. And and I was you know, incredibly happy to have any kind of audience, let alone a world audience, you know, so that kind of stuff was, I mean, there's a funny story, actually, that, uh, you know, why I was on tour, I think around 2003, and I, w I was, uh, you know, we were, uh, I was in the economy class with all of my, with my whole band, and we woke up, we were all sleeping on a flight from LA to New York, and uh, we woke up and our guitar player was gone, and we asked the flight attendant where he went, and, uh, he told the flight attendant that this is his band and he pointed to the in-flight radio and they put him up in first class. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, taking advantage of the, of the opportunity, right? Yeah, I mean, you, know, he, you know, he was awake. <laughs> we were <Yeah>. sleeping. <laughs> well, and, and you know, those days when there was less of this gratification of getting like a thousand, you know, 10,000 likes or, you know, having that kind of digital validation yeah. was it yeah. different and and perhaps uh, a different meaningfulness to the, yes. the validation then absolutely yeah um you know when I, the thing is like my career kind of art as through the uh, you know this whole transition of you know my first album was an album that came out in the record store and i had to go promote it and go do signings in record shops all over the country and all that yeah. kind of stuff all over the world actually yeah um and then the second record that I put out, Liberation, was the very first album to come out on iTunes that was an independent album. Right. So wow. it was literally like the fifth album available on iTunes. I think yeah. it was like Sting, Nora Jones, a few other artists, and then my album. Because they had just, um, they were in, the, in Silicon Valley. My label was in, in San Francisco. Um, so they went to Six Degrees Records. I just happened to be the next record they were putting out. Right. And my record was the very first iTunes release, uh, first independent iTunes release. Sure. So then since then, it, I kind of felt this transition in, um, in the beginnings of YouTube and MySpace and all that kind of stuff. So, it, you know, in the beginning, it, it felt like, wow, I have this power to reach all of these people. Yeah. Um, but as it's progressed, and I mean, especially now and today, I, I, I realize the difference between what the impact of somebody picking something up that you've created and walking past it on social media. And I, I liken it to, you know, when we see somebody on the street playing in New York City, you know, we might be completely amazed at, you know, 1230 in the afternoon and we might even give some money. Yeah. But by six o'clock in the evening, we forgot what yeah. we saw, you know, but that's a like. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what likes are. That's what likes and views and all of this stuff is now. And I mean, as a, if it's any kind of currency or any kind of indication of success, I don't, um, it's not something that uh, informs me as much as, you know, just personal, you know, if somebody sends me a, a message to, you know, as, as to what, you know, something I might've just put out means to them, means a hell of a lot more than, than a million likes. And it seems like those those were are far more fleeting as opposed to the more memorable activity of really sort of having this imprint of that 
that street musician who you walk by as opposed yeah. to the five second clip that you're flipping through on a phone or or whatnot. And, and then so for you, then I imagine that earlier in the artistic arc of your career, the commercial success becomes that sort of tangible artifact that's a that's a byproduct of it. But does that evolve in its in its priority, maybe as you mature as an artist? Or is is it the, the commercial aspect of it always intertwined in the in the business or in the artistry? Is there a reflection that you have now as a an artist who's, you know, not in the beginning of your career where the commercial success maybe, you know, changes the priority of your art? You know, it, it usually does. Um, I think for a lot of artists, and it really depends on how long of a career you want to have. Yeah. There are a lot of artists that kind of cash in on their commercial success and then move on to something else because they realize that that was it. Yeah. That was my moment. Um, I think for me, I, I've always just wanted to have an outlet to express myself. So I, I, what I've appreciated is the fact that I have been able to somehow uh, continue to be relevant. Um, but at the same time, it's not, uh, you know, like I know the difference between, you know, if I do something myself or if I do something that's independent, mm-hmm. independent of say any kind of kind of corporate backing or if it's not a big film, like I just did uh, a huge film yeah. uh, last year, Gully Boy. Yeah. And, and that was a massive success. But I mean, I also know the, the machine that was behind right. pushing that out to the world. So I, I've been doing this long enough to know the difference. Yeah. And for me, I, I, I absolutely appreciate being able to, you know, share something with a thousand people mm. and, and just let it be what it is because that's, those are the people that would understand what it is that I was trying to say, as opposed to, you know, reaching millions of people with something that, you know, kind of was, you know, I, I kind of just played the formula and, and did what, you know, was required of me as a, as a, as a craftsman, you know? So I, I mean, but I appreciate it all, but to answer your question, I mean, I, I, at this point in my career, I, I am definitely much more about reaching an individual. You know, if I have something to say and I bother actually putting it out, I'd rather reach, you know, a few individuals that, you know, because for me, I, I, like, as you are, a, 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 you know, in the medical profession, I mean, for me, I've always thought that music is medicine. Yeah. And it's much more potent when it's prescribed to the right people as opposed to just distributed out there on, you know. Right, uh, in a mass effect. You know, it, and yeah. does it mean that, um, that that sense of intimacy has to, is it always competing in some ways with the commerciality of it? Meaning you, you, you play to a small audience in a, in a small club with say 10 to 15 mm-hmm. people, and it could be the most yeah. amazing moment um, artistically of your life um, versus the possibility that that time could have been spent playing to a hundred thousand people in a large stadium. Is, is there always that yeah. tension that it lies between the intimacy and the scale of things? Can you have a concert to a hundred thousand people that feels real intimate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I have, I've been, I've yeah. had moments where I've, you know, been able to play for, you know, you know, tens of thousands of people and had, you know, the perfect musical moment. I mean, those were the moments where you're like, this is why I do this. This is why I ever dreamed of doing this. I've absolutely had those moments. Sure. But at the same time, you know, I, I think that like, 
the industry that we're in is constantly feeding you all of this information. I mean, I'm been, I, I get sent charts of, you know, people's numbers, people's, you know, that's how, that's how artists are now being, it's no longer record sales. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of data. It's, about, it's, a, it's just, it's all this data about their social media reach and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, that's kind of turned me a little off to that pursuit if that makes sense. I'm not, I'm not looking for that. I'm not, that's not my end game. Yeah. You know, my, my end game is to, you know, allow whatever it is that I do to um, have its most profound effect on a few people rather yeah. than have some watered down effect on a lot of you just recently won uh, the Asian film award for best original music for your work in gully boy. Like you, you mentioned, um, is there a difference sometimes in creating a piece as a collaborator to realize someone else's vision, like in their film or um, as part of their theatrical work, um, doing that through music versus creating your own piece? Yeah, there's a huge difference. Um, but I mean, that's the thing. I think, I think when, when I'm working on my own stuff, it's, you know, it, it's, it's exactly what it is that I want to say. Yeah. Um, when I'm working with a director for a film, uh, it is my job is to is to uh, realize their vision, yeah. their sonic vision, and and the and and also realize the reason why they asked me to do it. So mm. I have to bring those two worlds together and and kind of you know hopefully reach the right place. You know. For, for the director's vision to be realized. And, and, you know, like something like Gully Boy was a huge undertaking because the, the music was a character in the film. It was a musical, yeah. you know. It was like, for me, it was like Grease or Saturday Night Fever. It was, and I said that while we were working on it. I said, this film is going to be like Saturday Night Fever yeah. for India, you know. And it was. It really, I mean, all of a sudden to see, you know, rickshawalas and little kids and my dad calling me like, what is this Apna Tai Mayaga song? You know, like, it, was, you know, it, was a, it was a huge thing. And, and, yeah. and, I, and I knew that it was going to be big. So I, I just wanted to service the, the film the right way. You know, and, and there, do the right thing for the, for the movie and not implement too much of myself yeah. into uh, what the music required, but instead know that I'm good enough to do what is required without do that and, and is there a preference for one or the other do they feel the same is there a different gratification that you get when helping realize somebody else's sonic vision as you said um i think i mean it, at the end of the day now that i've done so much of so many different things what i most prefer is just to be able to do my own thing yeah uh and you know if you know, if, if people were paying me the amount of money that, that a film would pay me to just do my own thing, then I would just keep doing my own thing, <laughs> you know. Right. And it's a good problem to have, right? It, it's also work. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, the thing is, like, over the years, the thing is, uh, the other thing about, I, I think, what, why I've jumped around such in, you know, from remix work to live work to you know, doing film scores and TV scores and all this kind of stuff is because I do get, I'm a restless spirit in that way. I, I do, as, as after I've done my own album, I'd like to do something completely different. Yeah. You know, and so that these things give me the opportunity to do that. So, 
So the answer is that I, I would hopefully prefer to continue to do it all. Right. As opposed to just get stuck doing one thing. My guest today on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing is Karsh Kaye. After a quick break, we're going to come back and talk a little bit about his American roots. Stay tuned. Sanjeev Kapoor. You're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, my guest today on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing is Karsh Kare. Um, Karsh, you and I, and probably a lot of folks, recently lamented the loss of some American artists, most notably Eddie Van Halen. And, you know, such a tremendous loss to the industry. But for someone like you whose musical vehicle has had an Indian backdrop to it, are there elements of your art and style that are just unmistakably American? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, my, you know, I mean, the musical bloodline starts with American music, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, Bands like Van Halen and Rush, you know, and we lost two icons this year, Neil Peart and Eddie Van Halen, um, were artists that I have been following since I was five years old and had not, you know, never stopped. So it was devastating for me to, you know, when, you know, to lose these artists in the world and to know that they're no longer going to continue, uh, you know, sharing their gift. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, American music was what got me into music. Yeah. You know, I don't think I would have appreciated Indian music the way that I did unless I was first introduced to, you know, I, my father started playing the Beatles and people like Bing Crosby in the house. And then, of course, Casey Case of Top 40 was the next kind of doorway into everything that was happening. Right. And then... Uh, and then when I was five years old, my brother was, I don't know if you remember the Columbia House. Yeah. Uh, spend a penny and get 10 tapes. Yeah, 13 thing. or something, right? Yeah, yeah. then it was 13. First yeah. it was 10. <laughs> so um, of that first 10 tapes, it was, it was Led Zeppelin Four. it was Rush Moving Pictures, it was Van Halen One. it was Yes, Fragile, it was Aerosmith and Blondie and Pat Benatar and Billy Joel. And so this was all the first stuff that I heard when I was five years old. And that was the moment I knew that this is what I want to do. Yeah. You know, when I heard eruption, I was like, man, like a million other people on the planet, billion other people on the planet. Right. I knew that this is like a launching pad for the yeah. rest of your life, you know? So yes, absolutely. And it was, you know, it was a huge, huge deal for me to find out the news that Eddie Van Halen had passed away. Well, and for, for a style of music that's so American, like, you know, the, um, the Van Halen sound, 
Um, have you been able to, in, I mean, and now as a composer and, and as an artist, have you been able to sort of reflect back on some of your compositions and find that, yes, those influences are all over They're They're like fingerprints all over the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is that because, I mean, as a musician, I am, and throughout my own recordings, I've been a guitar player. I've been a drummer. I've been a bass player. I've been a keyboard player. I've been a singer besides being a tabla player and being a producer. So all of those things, I have always channeled my influences, you know, and that's everybody from, you know, say Peter Gabriel to Eddie Van Halen to Neil Peart to Steve Vai to, you know, I mean, I can, every track I can, I can say, right. oh, that, I know where that came from. Yeah. Hopefully nobody else does. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but, and, and, you know, it's a, it's a really um, amazing kind of phenomenon, right? That as, you know, we, we talk about the idea of growing closer globally, that then the um, influences can actually take on either a different meaning or a new meaning when you flow in modern uh, Indian music or, uh, you know, rhythms from West Africa or European music as well, because I'm sure that that informs a lot of, of the work for, for you and, and many other artists. As, as everything has gotten that much closer, you shared recently that, you know, you've been doing this for too long to sort of be swayed by adulation in, in some ways. And, you know, has in this particular sort of weird year of being within COVID and this era of social distancing, has this kind of magnified or changed um, our, our vanity when it comes to when we create art and the social, the need for social validation of that, um, you know, is the measurement now, as you mentioned, uh, of that art, is it the data? Is it the likes? Is it the, um, you know, the reach? In the, unfortunately, in the industry, it is. It yeah. is the measure. And that's what I think what artists are now having to work against. Mm. Um, because the industry does not, uh, it's no longer, you know, there, we used to have development deals, you know, back yeah. in the day. There was deals, you know, with record labels where they want to help you develop as an artist. Right. Um, you know, we used to, it, it's all changed so much and it's kind of just gotten down to numbers where, you know, it's literally as an artist, you're, it's like your credit score. Hmm. No longer about the possibilities. There's no right. longer about what's potential, you yeah. know, and somebody being able to understand that like, you know, here's a young artist I want to, I see some potential in what this is, but this, what they've projected on Instagram or on Facebook or on YouTube right now is just them reaching out to the world, asking for help yeah. instead of just to be judged for what they've done at that moment, you know, and that's, that's unfortunately what the industry has become, you know, so we're not, I don't think that we're really getting, except for the people that know how to really do it themselves. Yeah. We're not getting the best out of artists anymore. We're just mm -hmm. expecting them to figure it out themselves, you know. And well, I mean, I, now, now people just have to do concerts in their house and things right. like that. So. <laughs> well, but is that phenomenon of, um, you know, this ultra consumerism, perhaps, of the art, is, is that also just as American as the, you know, Van Halen riff that, that he leads to? In a, in a way, but I think that what's happened is that, I mean, like anything, I like any, any industry, if the bottom line is profit, then the actual lesson, whether it's medicine or music or anything, 
it's compromised. So in this, in this particular case, music gets compromised. I mean, Eddie Van Halen presented the world with something they had never heard before, you know? And, and he elevated that whole art form to a place where he didn't really have to. You know, Kiss was big too, you know, but you know, they weren't doing anything like what Van Halen was doing, you know, but they were able to sell just as many records and all, in fact, Gene Simmons was involved in discovering Van Halen. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, like people like Van Halen, people like Rush, people like, I mean, and so many, I mean, we could keep on listing artists, right. you know, the police and, you know, like the guys on your shirt. On my shirt, right. And that record, you know, these were people that changed music and they pushed the boundaries also because they were, we all lived in a bit of a vacuum at that time, you know, we, yeah. in order to even just to get any kind of response, you had to work really hard. Mm. And now you literally can sit in your bedroom and, you know, sing a cappella in your phone and, and get so much validation that you no longer feel like you have to develop that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the effort, the, the discipline that's required um, as well, and, and, you know, in, in some ways, sort of like there's this Americanness to that as well, right? That there's, you work real hard, you, you um, make yourself uh, into who you are, and, and that's the so-called, you know, American dream. In, in, in some ways, I'm curious about, um, you actually spent a lot of time uh, in India, um, in fact, a good, a good amount of time in India. You know, we met because of our involvement in the Marathi American community in in the yeah. states. But now that you spend more time in India, have you found it any any sort of need to seek out sort of an uh, an American tribe uh, in India that that seems to sort of um, you know capture some of that Americanness, or has that also changed? Is it much more of a global citizenship that you find yourself in? It's definitely much more of a global citizenship. Yeah. I think that uh, as I've, you know, I think back in the day, there was definitely, when I first started doing what I did, it was about helping to identify this, this generation's identity um, mm -hmm. through, through music and, uh, and connecting with them all over the world. So, you know, whether I was in Paris or London or Tokyo or, or Bombay or Delhi, I was connecting with the same kind of people. Yeah, you know, it wasn't really, and those were, it was the same kind of people that I was reaching. But then, as the, as my own music started reaching further out, I started to realize that that this idea of being a part of a global family, mm. and and then starting to see families become global, yeah, started to make it analogous to what it was that I realized I was actually trying to say, which was that you know, even at the Thanksgiving table. You know, some people speak a different language. We have many different political views. Some of us are from different parts of the world. Right. You know, but that's a family. Yeah. And if you can understand that these seven, eight people at the table represent, this is just a microcosmic view of the entire world, then that's what I want to say in music. That's mm -hmm. what I want to say, because I don't feel like my music is for any particular type of people. I mean, right. with all the time I've spent in India, I still feel connected to people from all over the world. Yeah. And I get, I get messages from people all over the world that my music meant something, you know, and the music. I don't want to even say my music, the music, right. because once they receive it, it's their music. Sure. And it represents their life and the diversity that exists in their life, whether they live in Italy or whether they live in San Francisco or in Bombay. It's, 
you know, we are all living the same kind of existence now. So, yeah, I feel much more of a, you know, a global existence than a, an American one. But, you know, I, I must say that this year, the one thing that did happen to me, and that was particularly because of the loss of Neil Peart and Eddie Van Halen, that I did, you know, there was a, you know, the, the air guitaring Long Island boy <laughs> is back. The kinship was there. <laughs> yes. Right. For sure. Let's talk a little bit, um, you know, what you mentioned earlier, sort of like the work that's required to to really, you know, garner the artistry and scale that, you know, when you were younger, did you ever imagine work or, or, or music or art to feel like a frame of work or a career? Um, you know, is, was there a discipline that's involved in that creative process that's perhaps slightly different now um, in that it's not simply... You know, the perception, of course, from the outside is, is that musicians live a life of just one big jam session. And in fact, there probably is a far, far larger aspect of hard work and discipline and craft that's involved, um, you know, for the folks who are actually creating the art. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, if, first of all, when I first started, I had no idea what it meant to have a career in, in music. I mean, I spent six years doing sessions on records and playing with bands and getting paid beer and dinner, you know, and maybe a few bucks to get home, you know, yeah. and that was fine. You know, yeah. if I had a little extra money after the gig, because the gig itself was the reward. That was the, you know, just to be able to do it. For me, I, I think what really uh, made a huge change in my life was early on. I was 25 years old when I became a dad. Yeah. You know, and that was a surprise that was not planned. So straight, you know, right, literally the day after I had finished mastering my very first album that was going to be released, you know, worldwide, which I was like, here I am. Right. Finally. Yeah. My girlfriend told me that, you know, we we're going to have a child. Yeah. So, so that was, you know, I, I, by the time my album had come out, that year was, it was 2001. So that was the year of September 11th. Mm. That was, which was a month was was a month before my daughter was born um but then also that was the year that i played with the beat science mm. uh live for the first time which i i know you know yeah. how much that meant to me to be a, in a band with zakir Hussain and yeah. Khan. Uh, so all of those things were happening like at the same time and i just quickly jumped into a different gear in terms of um just knowing that if i'm going to do this as a as a career that I have to start demanding my worth. Yeah. And ever since then, that's all I've done, you know, and I've never, I don't think that I've ever tried to get anything more than what I believe I'm, what I've done is worth, mm. whether it's a live show or whether it's a, you know, a production deal or whatever it is. And that's, you know, that's one part of it. But the other part of it is that, you know, I mean, for anybody who wants to jump into this world, you have to know that, you know, you're, you're literally jumping vine to vine for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, no matter what huge project I might have done before, I still have to jump on a vine and hope there's a tree that's going to catch me when I swing. <laughs> well, and that's, and, been the rest, that's been my life. Yeah. And, and, and you know what, um, Kirsch, as, as you do that in, in sort of celebrating the both early and subsequent successes, right? I mean, you were the first Indo-American musician to sign a solo rec recording contract um along the way have you had mentors or 
folks who've been able to sort of steer you in the right direction or in a direction to help you really sort of support the effort? Absolutely. I mean, I think that was, I was incredibly lucky to be, um, first and foremost, to be a part of, of WWE Science. Yeah. And that was a place where I, I mean, all three, uh, of course, Zakir Rai, um, Sultan Khansa, and Bill Laswell, all were heroes of mine. I grew up listening to all of them. Um, and not just heroes because of what they played on a recording, but because of the attitude they had taken in the industry, because of how they navigated themselves. So then I got to actually sit with them and yeah. tour the world with them and, and see how they handled things. You know, and, and they don't handle things the same way. So I got right. a little piece of Laswell, a little piece of Zakir, a little piece of Kansab, and then all of the different, you know, collaborators that came in, you know, with a lot of the projects I did, especially with Bill Laswell. Yeah. I got to work with a lot of really huge artists that I admired. I got to play with Herbie Hancock. I got to, you know, do a record with Bernie Worrell from Parliament Funkadelic. I got yeah. to play with, you know, Sly and Robbie, you know, from... Bob Marley's band, yeah, you know, and these were these are moments where you know, recording with Ravi Shankar, working with Sting, yeah. these are moments where you sit back and you are fool if you don't take uh, that as a lesson, as mm -hmm. a moment of learning. Of um, you know, uh, these were times where I took huge amounts of, uh, you know, of the rest of the you know time that I would spend as a musician, you know, learning from these guys. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My guest today is Kirsch Kare. And after a quick break, we're going to talk a little bit about innovation and the future of his work. Stay tuned. Radio at dashradio.com and download the Dash Radio app for complete access 24 hours a day, seven days a week to our station. Welcome back, everyone, to this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and my guest today is Kirsch Kaye. Um, Kirsch, you know, one project that I think has been sort of a beacon of, of innovation was the Coke Studios project that you were involved in. And I'm curious, when you're collaborating, is it just a naturally organic process to the uh, creation of music? And, you know, do you find that it's perhaps a different method of inspiration when you're actually playing or performing with other musicians as opposed to creating it yourself? Well, I think that when you're collaborating, you're always finding uh, the place that you connect. Um, and once you've made that connection, then you can take a journey together. It's like any kind of relationship, like yeah. a friendship, you know, when you, you, all you need to do is connect on something and then that friendship flourishes. So that's how collaboration works as well. And everyone that I've ever collaborated with that I've continued to collaborate with, we found a place to meet 
first. Mm. And then and then that's the place where you trust each other and then you can take each other on a journey. And, you know, and even if, it, if you're taking each other into places that you've never been before, it makes sense because you're with someone that you trust. So, you know, that Coke Studios episode, for instance, every person in that band, um, I had a connection, a, a, uh, a point of connection with, like, for instance, Warren Mendonza, the guitar player, yeah. who I've collaborated with, you know, for, the, for 10 years after Coke Studios as well. Um, we got together because we were rehearsing for a, a, a all-star show uh, at mm-hmm. the end of one of India's biggest music festivals, which is the NH7 Festival. Yeah. And before anybody showed up, I had never met him before. And we just started talking. I didn't know anything about him. Mm. Um, and he told me that he was a Led Zeppelin fan. Yeah. And we had gone to this rehearsal space where they just happened to have this double neck Gibson, which is the same guitar that Jimmy Page played. And we played Song Remains the Same together. And we just nailed it. And from that moment, everything, the door just opened up. So anything that we did after that, whether it was working with Carnatic musicians or, you know, working with Sarangi players or anything, it all made sense because we just needed to have that connection. So that, I mean, for me, like working with musicians is about making that connection, you know, and it's really no different than sitting with somebody and just playing an old record and connecting on the fact that it meant that much to you as it meant meant to that person. Does it almost make a difference if the, you know, because like any other relationship, there's a sort of, uh, you know, not literally, but maybe a emotional or a creative negotiation that has to happen that meets on a certain plane. Um, Is it even more magical when, you know, seemingly the artistry is so, you know, disparate uh, in that, you know, you would never imagine that someone like um, a Jimmy Page would be collaborating with a Senegalese artist or um, a Hindi film playback person would be doing something with a country musician. Does, does that kind of, you know, separation matter? And does it make the collaboration, collaborative effort that much more magical? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, back in the day, it was always about kind of, you know, you hear these things in your head. Um, you know, you might be inspired, you know, from a daydream about a sound that, you know, then you kind of try and put together, ooh, wouldn't it be cool if I got right. this rock band together with these Moroccan artists or, you know, yeah. whatever that might be. But for me, over the years, what started to, it started to become, especially when a, a next generation of musicians started to come about, for instance, with Abeksha. Mm. Abeksha Dandekar. Um, I'm, I'm always looking to bring it. more Dandekars into any sort of yes, conversation. Yes, so, yes. Yes. Let's talk about a Dandekar for a second. <laughs> you know, she was somebody who I knew had, you know, she you know, was singing incredible Hindustani classical music as well as her incredible R&B chops. Yeah. And so I said, let's do both in, in the same song. And you just jump from one to the other. And that wasn't necessarily something that she was, you know, at that time comfortable doing because there was no audience for people doing that. And I said, you know, that is what is going to make people feel like they're, they belong to much more than one particular thing is to see one person do that. Yeah. You know, and so I, I do look for musicians who are, you know, kind of multilingual and, you know, are now playing, and there are so many now, 
that, that are yeah. playing with many different styles because now people are exposed to everything. So even if you're a Hindustani classical or Carnatic student of music, you're still listening to hip hop, you're still listening to electronic music, still listening to rock, you know, all that stuff. So, you, you know, th these are the kind of artists I, 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 you know, search to collaborate with nowadays. Speak, you know, collaboration and creation are, are certainly a reflection sometimes of your own emotions or the relationships that you're going through. And, you know, you're a, you're a devoted father. You certainly have many friends in, in the industry. But, you know, do those relationships and, and what you're going through, um, do they manifest themselves in, in your work these days more so as, as you've become a more mature artist? I mean, they've always been a part of my music. I mean, my relationships, the things I'm going through with my family, with my friends, you know, that's what, you know, more than anything has informed the music that I've created, hmm. you know. And I, it's funny because I actually grew up um, when I was growing up and I was, I was pretty young when Zakir Usain had put out his Making Music album. Yeah. And I noticed that all the titles of his tracks were all the names of his family members. Hmm. And one was his you know, which John McLaughlin had composed, which was called Zakir. Yeah. And the rest were called Tony and Anissa. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was a kid when, when I was, you know, studying that album. Yeah. And that was something that, you know, I, I think kind of informed me in terms of where to draw your inspiration. If you, the first place to listen to your muse is from the relationships that you have, you know. So it was pretty cool for me to, you know, when I was doing my second record and, you know, was working on a track called Milan, which yeah. was named after my daughter, that Zakir Bai actually played on that track. Super cool. And, yeah. and you know, when, when you think about those, um, you know, uh, really just sort of very tender or sweet moments, um, does it, uh, you know, does, uh, do you, what the gratification from that must be just massive, um, when you actually are now thinking of the next, uh, you know, moment that you're trying to create or the next art you're trying to create, um, do you ever come to a, a finality? Meaning that like, you know, hey, does, does that somehow, does the gratification of what you've been able to express, um, you know, we sometimes as humans, we like to put brackets around things. I mean, is it, do you find that you need the time and space to then pause and, and re-energize and say, hey, you know what, I, that was such an amazingly exhaustive creation I just made. I actually need to recharge and, and sort of redevelop what I'm going to do next because I, I really just need to savor what's going on here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there are a few stages in the process of creation, and especially when you're working on an album project or a film or something that you're working for months on. Um, and, I mean, I, I do more so now than I think I did in the middle of my career where I got caught up in a lot of that stuff. Um, just simply appreciate that moment where you've cracked it, cracked yeah. it open, you know, and nobody needs to be around and no one will ever hear that. Yeah. No one will ever share that moment with you. And it's not something that I'm going to get likes about or people are going to buy or people right. are going to stream or anything. It's just a moment where I know that I've cracked. It. Now I, you know, this is what the song is. And then it becomes what it is. And then you, you know, go through the, you know, the, because there are so many stages. Once you've finished an album, there's still months 
of promotion and then you have to talk shit about it and you have to you know there's a lot of stuff that you got to do that literally waters the whole process down so i try and remind myself that the real magic is happening when you're just sitting there and you're and you're making it you know and you're stuck and i tell young musicians that as well trying to remind them that like you're going to get caught up in a whole bunch of stuff you know and it's not about how you feel the next day once you've posted it on instagram it's how you feel when you've made it you know, and you don't, you know, that day when, when I, you know, I, I had written the, uh, the song for the Breeding Underwater album and, uh, and Sting came to the studio to sing it, mm-hmm. um, that he had agreed to come to the studio to sing this song. And he was, you know, I had sent him a version of it that I was singing and I wrote the lyrics and, you know, it was based on a composition I had done with Anushka. Yeah. And, you know, all of this was like, you know, for me, I was, you know, I don't know if I'd express that to you when we knew each other back in the day, but I mean, yeah. Sting has been, you know, one of my heroes. Yeah. So yeah. it was like, it was like writing for, because he told me that you need to write the song because he was in the middle of the police reunion yeah. rehearsals in Tuscany yeah. at the time. Wow. So that was exactly at that time. And uh, so he was like, you, you write a song and then send it to me and I'll tell you if I like it. Yeah. So it was, it was literally like Shakespeare asking you to write something for him. <laughs> so, yeah. So the, my, me, my point of the story is that he came to the studio and we spent, you know, five, six hours working on this track. And it was this amazing experience. And that day, I just immediately after the studio, he had actually invited us to come to some uh, Rainforest Foundation event that mm-hmm. evening. And I said, no, I went home. And I got myself a couple of beers and I sat on the balcony and just sat by myself yeah. and just sat with it. You know, yeah. that was it. And I reminded myself, I was like, this is it, man. Like yeah. high-fiving my, my kid self. Right. You know, the kid who had the sting poster on his wall. I just spent the night high-fiving myself. You know, and those, those are, that's what it's all about. For me, that's the joy of, of making music. Well, um, you know, in a sense, I think uh, that joy is being celebrated by a lot of your fans and a lot of those who get to hear you both in that intimate way and from your commercial success. Um, Kirsch, it's been amazing to sit with you and chat. I really enjoyed it. I hope you'll come back and, and visit with us again soon. Yes, I would love to. I would love to. And thanks for having me. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about South Asian people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hear it every Monday, Tuesday on Ruckus Avenue Radio or wherever you get your podcast. Yeah.
वक्त मुश्किल था मगर जैसे भी हो बीत गया आज दुनिया भी तेरे साथ गुनगुनाती है कल अकेला ही था जो दुख भरा वो गीत गया से 
मैं सोचू हर घड़ी ये सर चढ़ी तलब है या या इनकी बड़बड़ी पे दिल मेरा धड़क गया ये बेसबर है आज कहना चाहे तुझको कुछ तू मुझसे खुश तो बांट लेना मेरा रोशनी है तब से टूटे तारे रूठे रब से क्या जादूगरी करी तूने है चोरी रे चोरी किया दिल चोरी 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 रे क्या सपने हमने भी सजा रखे हैं खूबसूरत आशिकी है हद से ज्यादा इश्क में हूँ तेरे मूरख मिला दे हमको हमसे गम को ढंग से महसूस करूँ तेरे संग में मेरे सपने अपने महफूज रखू मुझको चाहिए तेरे इश्क का नशा और तुझको चाहिए मेरे दिल के टुकड़ों का मजाक देखो मुकरो ना बता दो मुझको हाल दिल तुम्हारा भी टुकड़ो ना यू रिश्ते को तो जानो दिल हमारा भी मैं सबसे पूछ चुके ये कब से कब तक हमसे रखबत मैं सबसे पूछ चुके ये कब से कब तक हमसे रखबत मैं सबसे पूछ चुके ये कब से कब तक हमसे रखबत कब से कब तक कब से कब तक हमसे रखबत जिंदगी जहर का प्याला पी लिया पिया के नाम जी गए तो दुनिया हार गिर गए गिरा के जाओ मुश्किलों से मुश्किलों की मुश्किलें संभाली है मुश्किलों की की कश्तियाँ सवारी हैं हमने भी वफा की हमने हमने भी दगा की है हमने ही जुदाई जीती हमने ही सदा की है हमने तुझको पाके खोया हमने तुझको खो के पाया हमने तेरे वास्ते ये लिख दी है कवाली के नजरों के ये काले घेरे इनमें ही संभालो ना अपने मैं बना लू इनको दे दो मुझको टालो ना मैं छोड़ जाता दुनिया लापता सा हो जाता तो क्या तो खो जाता मैं सपने ओढ़ सोच जाता मैं रोक पाता खुद को इस झमेले से तो कहता ना यू तुझको कह तो मुझको अब अकेले छोड़ मैं सबसे पूछ चुके ये कब से कब तक हमसे रख पर मैं सबसे पूछ चुके ये कब से कब तक हमसे रख पर कब से कब तक कब से कब तक हमसे रख पर
Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about people and their purpose in the South Asian diaspora. And what they're basically saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Listen every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific on RuckusAvenueRadio.com. This is Shilpa Agarwal. Check out my show, Life Force, where we explore the mystical, magical, and sometimes unexpected forces that awaken our lives. Life Force airs every Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, only on Ruckus Avenue Radio.